born into you? Um, I think for to start, we're going to be we're going to start in Genesis uh, 13, I think. I want to refresh your mind, refresh your memories on some of the stories or one of the uh, accounts of Abraham in the Old Testament. Refresh your memory on it, and then go to one of the Psalms and use this this uh, this account of Abraham as kind of a background. So we'll get this kind of high level, fly through it. But before we start, let's ask the Lord for His blessing. Father, we do come before you this morning, and we look to you for your blessing, from your word, for instruction, for edification, for our prophet, according to the good mercies that you've shown us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in your name, amen. So Genesis 13, I guess, it, it opens with after Abraham has left the land of Egypt. So he's... He's headed back north up into the land, towards the land of Canaan, and makes a comment that he's very rich at this time, and Lot, who was with him, was very rich as well. And in verse 6, it tells us that the land was not able to support them, that they might dwell together, because their possessions were so great they could not dwell together. And so there was a little bit of argument, fight between their herdsmen, Lot's herdsmen, who would argue with Abram's herdsmen as far as where to feed the animals and so forth, and I remember as a kid, I never really appreciated or understood what they were going through, but after a couple summers of having their own animals and it was really dry, you're trying to find a place to feed the horse, and the pasture, you know, it got much pasture, and the grass was not growing as fast as the horse was eating it. It becomes a pretty significant thing that all your animals got to to get them fed. And so they were faced with that, having large herds. They just couldn't find pasture lands that were had adequate grass to feed their animals, and so there was controversy. One would show up at one spot, well, this is where these guys wanted to be, and so they would have that controversy. So Abraham and Lot got, to, or Abram and Lot got together at that time and uh, discussed what they were going to do, and they decided it would be best to split off, one go one way and one go the other way. And it says in uh, verse 11 that Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from one another, Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. So I want you to remember that part, that the wickedness of the men of Sodom that they had. These were in the days where uh, Shem was still alive, who had been on the ark. And I don't know that maybe Noah had only recently died. If maybe he might have still been alive. I mean, this was they, they knew the reality of the flood. They knew the reality of God and so forth. And here, these men were turned away from God and were indulging in as much wickedness and sin uh, to to uh, you know, like we, we see out in uh, some of the big cities in our country, where it's just a a sin center. And it was Sodom. And uh, Abram stayed in the land of Canaan, and, and the Lord tells him that all that land he was going to give him. Then in chapter 14, we're back at these guys of Sodom, and they were they had rebelled against, it says in verse 4, at 12 years they served Ketalaomar, and the 13th year they rebelled. 
And then the 14th year, Keterleomar and the other kings that are with them came down and attacked Sodom. And it talks about how they came. They came from the north, and they came down to the edge of the land of Canaan, and they fought against the, uh, the Rephaim. And then they went a little farther south, and they hit Zuzim and Emim. And then they went off to the east, and they attacked the Horites and Seir, and, and down south, and then they kind of looped back up. So it wasn't just that they came and attacked Sodom. They, they attacked every major city on the way down with all their mighty people groups, and even past Sodom, and then they came back up towards Sodom. So they just made that big loop. And this guy was unstoppable, is kind of the point that's being brought up before us. And sure enough, King of Sodom and Gomorrah could not stand against him, but they were uh, totally overrun. And Kedarle Omar grabbed all the stuff he'd get his hands off, and called it all back up north. He had accomplished what he came down there for. And so it, it says in verse 12 that Lot, who had been with and lived near Sodom, they took Lot and Abram's brother's son who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. And so at that point then, Abram got together his servants and went after Kedileomor and defeated him and, and uh, rescued Lot and got all the stuff back and brought it back down to Sodom. Then... As he's bringing the stuff back in chapter 14, verse 18, we get that little story of Melchizedek, which means the king of righteousness. Uh, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and Salem means peace. So you got the king of righteousness, the king of peace. He brought out food and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Now, Salem, uh, a lot of people believe that Salem is Jerusalem, on top of that holy mountain, what will become the holy mountain of God, that Mount Zion, is where Melchizedek uh, lived. Why didn't Keterleomer attack Melchizedek? No idea. Where did Melchizedek even come from? I have no idea for that either. But here he is, there on top of Mount Zion, the Mount of God, Earth. I guess Horeb is an altar god, but this place where God would set his name. And he comes out, blesses Abram, and uh, and I think as a result of this, Abram realized who it was that was with him, who it was that had defeated his enemies. And so when he came to Sodom, he was not interested in the things. He, had, he was interested in God, and he didn't care who got the stuff. It completely changed his perspective. It wasn't just about becoming rich. It was about uh, being recognized and received by God as Abraham valued. And that brings us then to chapter 15, which is a famous chapter because it's quoted in Romans. Uh, verse 1 starts out, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your, I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Well, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. So he's got all the stuff, but he's got no, nobody to pass it on to. And it says in verse 4, That the Lord, word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but the one who comes from your own body will be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven, count the stars, if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. 
But it's those little verses that make this chapter so famous because it's the first description we have of somebody coming to believe in God and being made righteous, not because of their works per se, but because of their faith. And Abraham, Abraham becomes a pattern for all of us in how we find righteousness uh, from God, believing in him. So that's the background. You've got these wicked men. You've got their uh, destru- destruction from Keterleomar. You've got Abram defeating them. You've got and just just totally destroying them. And then you've got the king of righteousness on, on that uh, mountain of Jerusalem and his uh, benediction to Abram. And then you've got God telling Abram that he is his shield and God making the promise to Abram and Abram believing in God, trusting in him. I'll just go to Psalm chapter 2, or second Psalm, with these things in the back of our mind. I think Psalm 2 is one of the one of those passages that clearly present before us the sovereignty of God in all of its reality, truth and reality. What you see take place here is the, the uh, reality of God's sovereignty uh, put on display. It's normally, I mean, when we, when we talk about from a theological perspective, when we talk about sovereignty, we think about God being in control, like he's got everything mapped out and everything figured out and everything happens according to his will. That's how we normally think of sovereignty when we talk in Bible perspective. But Psalm 2 gives us a little bit different view of what the sovereignty of God is actually like. So, starting in verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people plot the vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. That's the first stanza, we'll say, in the Psalms. In the Psalms, I'd say first paragraph, but since Psalms are supposed to be musical, we'll call it the first stanza. First stanza is about the... Uh, the nations, the kings of the earth, and the rulers, they wanting to break the bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. They're talking about God. They want to, they feel that God has these bonds, these limitations, these tie, he keeps them tied down. Like he doesn't let them do what they want to do. They're kind of stuck to operate in a certain way because God has got them limited got rules, he's got commands, he's got all these different kinds of things to keep them restricted and restrained. And they're saying, we want to break free of that. We don't want that anymore. We want to be able to be free to do whatever we want to do and not have to answer to God. I was thinking about that and where that comes from, that desire to break free from the bond of God. And it it started back in Genesis, that when, when uh, Adam and Eve ate that fruit, they gained for themselves the knowledge of good and evil. And 
what the knowledge of good and evil means is that they now, that and from that point on, they had an opinion as far as what one choice might be towards another, against another choice. Uh, they had an opinion about what would be good and what would be bad. Uh, we see this, and I was thinking about it, like, like we see this demonstrated quite early in children, because all of us have had that knowledge. All of us who have come from Adam and Eve now have that knowledge of good and evil. But you take a child and you have set before him a plate of cookies and a plate of cooked steamed broccoli, raw, no salt, no cheese, just broccoli and cookies. And you tell him, the broccoli is good for you. You should eat the broccoli. And he's going to look at you and say, shove the broccoli aside. He's going to want the cookies because he thinks the cookies are good. I mean, and in his mind, it makes sense. You know, you take the cookie, you take a bite of it, and you get this taste of sweet flavor. And if it's chocolate chip, every once in a while you get that little bitter but abundant sweetness that pops inside your mouth, and it's good. Right? You like cookies, Decker? Yeah, of course. Would you take cookies or broccoli? If your mom gave you broccoli or cookies, which one would you take? Yeah, because cookies are good, and broccolis are evil. So bad. So we make, from very young age, we make choices. As we, we look at a choice, and we decide what is good or what is bad. Why is it like that? Why isn't it the case that when you put the broccoli and the cookies in front of a kid and you say, you need to eat the broccoli because it's good for you, and they're like, okay, so then they start taking the broccoli and they eat the broccoli and, oh, boy, it doesn't taste all that great, but if it's good for me and mom says I should do it, then I should, you know, just, why, why is there resistance that they won't, won't they don't want to eat the broccoli, you tell them to eat the broccoli and they got the cookie as an option, they're like, no, I don't want the broccoli, I don't like the broccoli, I don't like its texture, I don't like its flavor, I don't, there is, there shouldn't be a resistance, except for we have inside of us something that tells us this is this cookie is good, broccoli is bad. We have this thing inside of us that decides what we like, what we want. And it doesn't always, over time, we start to learn that after eating cookies for several years and we get sick off of them or something, we start to find out that the broccoli is actually good for us, mom and dad were right, and so then... Maybe a perspective changes where we start to realize the cookies, even though they taste good, they're only good for the few seconds that you're eating it, and the broccoli actually has longer-term benefit. And so you start to learn, um, maybe I should eat more broccoli, at least balance the broccoli out, or balance the cookies out with a bunch of broccoli. So we, but it's it's us. I mean, we are learning and deciding what is good and beneficial. At first, we just see short-term, then eventually we see long-term and all the rest of that stuff. But what, what we're doing is we're making choices based on what's going to benefit me. And sometimes it truly benefits us, like eating broccoli, or sometimes it only benefits us for a short time, or cookies. You know, we eat the cookies because it just tastes good. That's who we are. What it leads to is that there are things out there that taste good short-term, things that we can do. They, they're short-term enjoyment, but they have the potential for long-term destruction. You know, and I'm talking about different sins that people might get involved with. You know, like sometimes we might say that telling a lie is going to benefit me because I'm not going to get in trouble. So like, you know, you've done something wrong, and your mom comes up to you and says, hey, what did you, did you do this? It's awfully tempting to say, no, I didn't do it. Even when, though you did, you know, you don't tell a lie to cover yourself up. But, but we know that telling lies is 
it's a <clears throat> it doesn't lead to good in the end. If you make a habit of telling lies, it destroys your entire social life, it twists your personality and all the rest of stuff. And it's just it's not good, not to mention it's a sin. But sometimes sin uh, appeals to us in the short term, and there are and there are sometimes people find that there are things in sin that they really enjoy. Like uh, maybe you've got a young adult who's not yet married, but he wants to enjoy the benefits of being married. And in those cases, especially when you're a young adult and you're, you know, when you're, well, let's back up a little bit. When you're sitting there as a little kid, you got your cookies and your broccoli, and here's your mom telling you you shouldn't be eating the broccoli. Sometimes you want to rage inside and say, let's break those bonds off of me. Well, I want to just be free to eat cookies and don't have to eat broccoli. I want to break the bonds off. Why do we do that? Because we have a desire inside of us. We're ruled by our knowledge of good and evil. We're fighting. We want freedom to act on what I think is good and, and turn away from what I think is bad. Whereas mom is sitting there, she's putting all these restrictions on us. Well, it's the same kind of thing as we get all older and we start to deal with God. We start to realize that God says these things are wrong, these things are right. And what I want to do with the wrong things, I find the wrong things look like a lot of fun. And they're... You can imagine what it's like when the little kids who don't eat their broccoli, when they get older and they find other pleasures. And it, if they've never... Uh, and we see it around us, you know, like people are doing things that they are known as wrong, but it's because it's, you know, and it's, you begin to rage against God. And you say, if only I could get God, or, or sometimes we rage against the government. We say, if only we could get the government, and you know, the government's got all these laws and stuff like that. I just break the bonds of this government off me so I can be free to do what I want to do. Well, that's what he's describing here in Psalm 2. You've got these nations and these people, these people... They're plotting. They want to cast the bonds off. People always do that. But what he's describing is it's even a worse situation. Usually, you've got individuals inside of a society, and they're wanting to do things that are destructive and harmful. You've got the government that will step in and say, oh, you can't do that. What happens when the kings and the rulers say, let's cast the bonds of God off of us? Let's, let's allow the society to indulge in whatever immoral thing that we prefer. Well, we know what happens. We're seeing it happen around us, right? I mean, the government is encouraging us to get into immoral things. Well, we're at a state now where it's considered a, a good thing to say, we like to kill babies. Or, you know, all these other different things that we see around. I don't have to go into detail. When the kings of the earth when the rulers who are supposed to punish evil, when they themselves are embracing evil, we look at the society around us and we say, all is lost. There's, what can you do to recover America? What can you do to recover our society? It's all lost. There's nobody around upholding righteousness anymore. Everybody is turn towards wickedness, and even our rulers enjoy wickedness and encourage it. <coughs> and that's what Sodom and Gomorrah was like. Abram saw the wickedness. They had a reputation of being wicked. and it, But it wasn't like cruel being wicked. It was fun wicked. And they had a lot of society and wealth down there. That's why Lot wanted to live near them, because it was, you know, it was fun. There was a lot of 
good fun things. As long as you didn't get involved in the bad fun things, just they that you know it was. But what it was was they were casting off, trying to break free of God's bonds that they saw as restrictions of you should not be immoral, you should not be telling lies, and those kinds of. They want to break free of that. It's a it's a, a terrible. Terrible, uh, terrible thing when a society gives itself over to wickedness. Like I said, sometimes we might stand there and look at such a society and say, all is lost. But in verse 4 of chapter the Psalm, it says, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision, and then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And that's the second stanza. Well, the first one describes the nations, how they want to break free from God. The second one describes God's response to their desire to break free of his so-called bonds. He has a different look at it. He says that they... He doesn't say that he sees their wickedness and it gets him so mad he picks up his sword of lightning and goes down with a crash of thunder and hews his enemies into pieces. He just says he laughs. It's not, a, not an issue, not a problem. And the reason is quite profound, I think. The reason God laughs he rules in righteousness, not because he's a goody two-shoes, but because doing what is right, uh, it's almost like what is right is beneficial in the long run. So part of what makes sin sin, or what makes it so bad, is that it's damaging to other people, and sometimes damaging to yourself. So... Uh, for example, you could take a blatant sin like murder. The reason murder is wrong is because you, this person here who is enjoying their life, you brought an end to that, and now they can no longer enjoy their life here on earth that God has given them. It, it really has a negative impact on the other person. Uh, I remember when the kids were younger, you know, I had one daughter whom I loved very much, was kicking and biting the other kids, whom I also loved very much, which made me very angry that she would be bringing damage to these other kids. That's what God looks at. He sees that's why sin is so evil, because of the damage that it produces. Sometimes it damages ourselves. You know, we tell lies, get in the habit of telling lies, pretty soon we can't speak the truth anymore. And so our personality becomes distorted. We become a liar, a habitual liar. So, sin causes damage, but God reigns in righteousness. That means that everything that he does is right for everybody. Just hard to do. Uh, sometimes if you watch like a, a movie where you got the hero and he's trying to defeat the bad guy, and a lot of times if it's a kid's movie, you never see the hero go in and actually kill a bad guy himself. If the situation is like he gets there and they're fighting, and then all of a sudden the bad guy falls off the edge of the cliff and he kind of dies himself. Or he's trying to get away and he, 
gets killed in some way or another, shape or another. Because what they're trying to do in a movie is they're trying to set it up in such a way like, if the bad guy is the one who goes around killing people, then the hero, when he comes along, if he kills the bad guy, how is he any better than the bad guy? Because the bad guy was killing people, and he can't have the hero going in there and killing people. How do you carry out justice and not become a bad guy? Big problem in the movies. And so they always got the, a lot of times they got this unrealistic ending where the bad guy just kind of does himself in. Uh, where was I going with that? <laughs> so when God reigns in righteousness, how to carry out judgment where you execute enemies, but you execute them justly in a way that is fair and makes sense to everybody. Terrain and righteousness is very hard. It's much easier just to kind of cheat righteousness a little bit. You know this guy's a bad guy, so just execute him. I mean, why go through the trial process with him? Trying to rule in righteousness is very difficult, but that's what God does. Is he rules in righteousness because it's beneficial. He sees that living in unrighteousness, you destroy yourself. Kind of weird. Sometimes we think, I want to do the fun things that are bad. I don't want to do the good things that are right because they're not as fun. Well, reality is the fun things that are bad, if you pers- if you follow them far enough, they will destroy you. If you follow the things that are right, it will build you up and make you into a good, uh, better person. Doing right results in that kind of thing. So he sits in heaven and laughs because these nations are indulging in this wickedness and this evil. They will destroy themselves. Well, that seems to be his perspective. They will destroy themselves. And I was listening to a, a book on the history. I think it was in the Carter administration. And uh, the idea was that they there was a push to legalize drugs. They were going to make all kinds of drugs legal throughout the U.S., and there was one guy, he was a citizen, just an average, everyday guy, kind of leader. He was pushing really hard. And then there was somebody in the government that was really close to the president that he was in agreement. So you got these two guys, they're working together. And there was some resistance in America because some people knew that drugs were damaging to people. So they didn't want drugs to be legalized. They wanted to be outlawed. They saw what happened when people try to get their kids hooked on drugs and how it ruin their lives and kill them and stuff. So they had some resistance, these two guys. But they were working hard, and they were getting things around. They had the guy up in the government. He had the strategy all worked out and how they would do their different things or whatever so that they could sell the thing to the public and get, get, us, get America as become a drug culture. And they were making great progress, and it looked like they were going to succeed. But what happened was the guy in government was doing things a particular way because he understood politics. You know, he had to do a little here and do a little there, concede a little there in order to be able to get your greater agenda across. The other guy who was leading, but he wasn't in, he wasn't in the government, he didn't like how the guy in the government was doing it. And he got mad at him. And he ended up, they ended up at a party together in a house and they, uh, they were drew, they were doing, I think it was like marijuana or something like that, but there was cocaine there too. Hard drugs. So marijuana was considered fairly acceptable by the general public. Cocaine was not. And so after that party, there was a report released that the guy in the government had gone back into a back room and had been doing cocaine. And that went out to the media and it pretty much destroyed the guy up in the government. 
and the whole push then to try to get drugs as, as a norm in our culture fell apart because of the backlash was so strong against this guy, the, the president distanced himself from his cabinet member, that guy fell from grace, boom, and out it went. Well, it turned out what happened was that the other guy, you know, they were both at the party, being mad at this at the government guy, he was the one that released the report. And he did it on purpose. He was going to show him a thing or two and ended up taking him down. So what happened was that these two guys going at it, when you're on drugs, you don't make very good judgment decisions. So he's sitting there, and he's like, I don't like what this guy does, so I'm going to release his report, not realizing, because he's high on drugs, what that's going to do to their whole movement, and they destroyed themselves through their own wickedness. And I think that's what God sees happen, is that the wicked, they build up, they get stronger, whatever else, they're going to destroy themselves. He just sits in heaven and laughs. He's like, you think you're going to take over by embracing wickedness? Wickedness leads to destruction. If you're going to take over, you're, the only hope is to do it by righteousness, which, of course, if you're going to do it by righteousness, then you're not going to try to take over. But anyhow, so he laughs. And what's interesting about looking at these men of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were wanting to cast the bonds of God off of them. Let's get rid of God so we can be free to do whatever we want to do. But they found themselves in another bondage. They had to pay a tribute or a tax to Ketaleomar, who lived hundreds of miles away. And they said, we want to be free of his bonds too. So they tried to be free of his bonds, and they stopped paying their tribute, and they went on their merry life. Well, Ketaleomar was kind of a strong guy. So when he comes down, you see, it was... Sodom and Gomorrah, it was their desire to break free of bonds that led them to their destruction. Because that brought Ketaleon down, and it brought destruction upon their heads. God laughs at them. He says, you're going to self-destroy yourself because you're pursuing after wickedness. You're, it, there's no way this can succeed. You're going to make stupid decisions that's going to lead utterly to your downfall, or eventually to your downfall. But God has set his king, he says, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And that's the weird part about Melchizedek, because you got all this chaos going around, these guys trying to make wickedness the norm of life, and trying to cast off all bonds of any kind of restraint, and they're ending up with this big army coming down and is destroying people left and right and all around the whole region and destroys them and everybody's destroyed and the whole society is falling apart right before their eyes. But there, just a little bit to the west, on top of a Mount Zion, is a king of righteousness, a king of peace, right in the middle of all that. Like all that, all that stuff taking place and it's like, now you got this king on this holy hill. Where did he come from? How did he get there? And I wonder, the Bible doesn't say this, but I wonder if Melchizedek and his little city nation or city state, if they became rather key in that whole area for a while because all the destruction that had happened when Ketaleomer came down, but they had a, a surviving civilization. I don't know. They probably He definitely became key with regards to Abraham announced upon him the blessing that God had. Brother, in Genesis, we're not told how God set his king on his holy hill. But we do see it in the story of David. 
David is another king that was established on that same holy hill. And you remember the story of David, how Saul was so wicked. Saul was turning away from God, and God rebuked him time and time again, but Saul wouldn't listen. He kept on going his own way. He kept on justifying himself. And as he uh, tried to cast the, the bonds of God off of him, a troubling spirit came upon him. So God sent David to Saul, and the purpose of David was to deliver Saul from that troubling spirit. And David played his harp, and he sang his songs, and he followed God, and he was very diligent about following God. And Saul had a perfect opportunity to realize the stupidity of his decisions, to turn away from his wickedness, and follow an example of David. But he didn't. He saw David was following after God, and he hated him all the more, and he tried to kill him. And David had to run and to flee and hide, and he had to go out into the wilderness and he's off by himself, and he wasn't by himself for very long because there were some people that came with him, and there was other people that were in trouble with Saul, and they all came around David, and next thing you know, David becomes greater and greater, and Saul begins to see him as more of a threat, but God is protecting David. There's no way God is going to set David up on that holy hill, but you know what propelled David onto that holy hill? It was Saul's hatred. If Saul hadn't run him out of his court, if Saul hadn't persecuted him, if Saul hadn't chased after, you know, remember Saul killed all the priests because they had seemed to help David, and so the priests were, you know, all that stuff. It was Saul's own wickedness and desire to cast off the bonds of God that really led to David being established on the hill of Zion. David didn't try to rise up in rebellion against Saul and try to put him down and kill all of his family members and try to establish himself. He didn't. No, he didn't. In fact, David was very dedicated to not killing Saul. He was not going to raise a hand against the Lord's anointed. And it was Saul's hatred against David that propelled David on top of the holy hill. That's how God sets his king up there. He doesn't come down and, all right, this place is a mess. I'm going to start cleaning up. You guys aren't doing what's right. I'm going to really crack down here, and I'm going to get things set up the way I want. No, no. He sees them in their wickedness, and he kind of laughs and says, well, you guys keep on going that way, and you're going to end up doing exactly, you're bringing about exactly what I want to bring about. That's God's sovereignty. Not that he takes control of everything. It's just whatever people do, he's able to use to bring about his purpose. And so that, for the psalmist and for us, is a, a great source of encouragement to realize you know, we want to see God come in and just clean up this mess. You know, turn on a fire hose and wash out all the wickedness. But God's approach is to let wickedness self-destroy itself and place his king on the holy hill of Zion. And that's what's going to happen. I mean, it's it's coming. Only it'll be the Lord Jesus on that hill. So the third stanza, verse 7. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is this stanza makes the psalm messianic. Uh, we can see that it is the Father speaking, speaking to the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
But what's interesting is to step back from that for a second and rethink of who else did God promise the nations as an inheritance source? Well, not really quite the nations in here, but I promised an inheritance that nations would come from him. That was Abraham, right? Sot Sot went down a lot to Sodom. Lot went down to Sodom because the grass was green, and God told Abraham, you stay here. I'm going to give you this land as an inheritance. And he told him later on, he said, I will cause nations to proceed from you. You will break them with the rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a pottery vessel. It's interesting then to see the correlation as Abram would chase after Kedileomar and break him like a potter's vessel and smashed him into pieces. And the guy was an unstoppable army. But Abram was the one that God used with his few hundred men to destroy that unstoppable army and bring everything back. I mean, he utterly destroyed Kedileomar. You don't go up to somebody's place, take their stuff out, you know, in a situation like that where he's just come down a stove. It's like... A robber, when he grabs onto something and he's gone away with it, you don't get that away from the robber unless you really put a stop to the robber. Abram, I mean, you grab all that stuff and you start on your way back. There's always a chance that, that Kedileomar is going to gather some more troops and he's going to come after you to get the stuff that he had won in battle. But Abram didn't worry about that because he had utterly destroyed Kedileomar and all of his armies. Just a complete destruction. A little visual of what God is talking about here when he says you will break them with a rod of iron, you'll dash them in pieces like a potted vessel. Now, he says, the Lord has said to me, you are my son. This is intended to be such a stark contrast between this son here and the kings and the rulers of the earth in the first stanza. The kings and the rulers of the earth, they were trying to break the bonds of God off of them. The son didn't see God's care for him as bonds or restrictions. He embraced these so-called bonds. Very much like Abram. Abram, as he hears from that king on the holy hill of Zion that God was with him, Abram embraced God. He said, I don't want to break God's bonds on. Let God put more bonds on you. Draw me in closer. Like, loop me around and draw the bonds tight so that I'm close to God. I don't even care if I have to give up all this stuff, all my wealth, just so that God will bring me close. That's what I want. That's the character of the son. He's not trying to break free. He's trying to draw near. And God takes pleasure in his son. He says, you are a beautiful son. Today I've begotten you. And he tells him, uh, you know, it's like, it's like with your kid, you know, you, you want to, it's their birthday time or whatever, they've done something, you know, say, what would you like for your birthday? What, what kind of present can I get you? And you wait for your son to tell you what kind of present he wants. Well, that's not how this takes place. He, he says, what kind of present shall I get you? In fact, I'll tell you what I'll give you if you just ask. I'll give you the nations as an inheritance. I'll give you the ends of the earth for your possession. Just ask. He's God is so wrapped up. I don't know if wrapped up is right word, but he's so, uh, his son is so dear to him. 
makes the promise, I will give you these things you just ask. Abram experienced that favor as God told him. These are the things that I will give you. Abram didn't ask for these things. Initially, it was God that came to him and said, here's what I will give you. Now, what's weird about this little stanza is we know who the Son of God is, you know, being the Lord Jesus Christ. Like He's God, right? And one thing about God is he is not dependent on anybody for anything. Like we as humans, we are dependent on air to breathe. We are dependent upon food to generate energy. We are dependent on water to be able to go to the bathroom or something. But we're dependent on all these different kinds of things just in order for us to live. We have to have something from the outside that we can take in in order for us to live. God's not like that. He's not dependent on anybody for anything to live. He's the source of life. Right here you got the Son of God, and God and the Father says to him, Ask of me. When you have to ask, that implies a dependency. Like I am dependent upon you to provide what I ask for. I can't just take it myself. I can't get it myself. That's what's weird about this stanza, is that the Son of God would be in a position where he would have to ask, where he would have to have some dependence upon his Father. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. I think that today I have begotten you is when the Lord Jesus was born. And he became a man. Because one thing about men is that they are created for this, for, they are created in such a way where they are absolutely dependent upon God for life. We can't live without God. We have to look to him. We have to look to him for rain to provide our food. We have to look to him for, uh, you know, the food that he make, you know, everything. We gotta look to him. We can't live without him. Even for wisdom, to know what is good or what is evil, we have to get that from God. The Son of God became a man. He came to put himself in a position where he became dependent upon God. It's quite something to think about. And there's a, there's, I mean, there's a lot that goes into that, why he became a man and what he was able to do because he was a man. Of course, one of the big things that we think about is how he was able to die on the cross for our sins because he became a man. But he placed himself in a position of dependence. And I think as part of that, his willingness to be dependent upon God, and to draw near to God as a man, uh, that's what makes him so dear to God, so precious. Now, now, please understand, man, but he's still God. He never gave up his God. So then our final stanza, verse 10, Therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Uh, last verse, there's some uh, different manuscripts say different things, which is a little unusual in the Hebrew. But uh, it could, the other manuscripts say something like, uh, embrace discipline or embrace instruction, lest the Lord be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. 
and blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So it either says kiss the son, or it says embrace discipline or instruction. Lest, the, lest he be angry or the Lord be angry. And I thought about it, I was like, well, which one's right? And I was like, well, actually, they both say the same thing. Because the son became a man, he is the word of God. He is the one who proclaimed to us, or he, he, he is the word of God. He's the, he is our instruction, our wisdom from God. And uh, you embrace him, you embrace the word. So the, the psalm closes, he says, take a lesson from these uh, kings of Sodom and these kings of wickedness. Take a lesson from them. You see how their wickedness took them to destruction. And you see how the son embraced the bonds of God. He didn't find it to be bondage. He found it to be blessing. They thought their cookies the kings, their cookies was being free from God, and the broccoli was being bound to God. The son saw the broccoli of being bound to God as something good, and something desirable. The kings of the earth destroyed themselves. The son was given, he didn't have to take it for himself, it was given to him. The nations as an inheritance, and all the ends of the earth as his possession. Be wise, O kings, he says. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Take on the bond of God. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. And he closes with this thought. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Blessed are all those who believe in him. Just like Abraham. Made righteous because he believed in God. He trusted in God. Uh, truly a blessing for Abram. And we look on him to this day and we say what a blessing it was for him to receive righteousness because of his faith. A blessing of Abraham that we enter into by believing in him. Because in, I don't know if I'll ever get to this, but like Psalm 3 one thing that caught my attention there, verse 3 says, Lord, you are a shield to me. Remember the Lord said to Abram, I am your shield. And uh, Psalm 3 talks about just resting in the Lord and he taking care of all your enemies. Uh, it's interesting to think about in light of that context. Let's go ahead. Our Father, we come before you and give you thanks for your son, for his coming and his uh, willingness to do all according to your will. It, uh, truly, he has become our salvation because he has become our sacrifice. We thank you that we can rest in him and we thank you for giving him for us. And look to you for your continued blessing and for your working in our hearts to draw us toward yourself, your bonds of love. And I ask that you continue in that work in Jesus' name. Thank you.